1: Hello and welcome back to my Friday Five and very nice indeed it is to be back in the UK to share a slightly longer listen here just in time for the Long Bank Holiday Easter weekend. I hope that you have got some very nice rejuvenating downtime ahead. For me, well, my weekend will mostly be spent unpacking suitcases and in the company of my washing machine. Not that I'm complaining, I actually happen to love doing laundry. Is that a weird thing to love? Well, one of my best investments recently was a clothes steamer. Yeah, it gives me endless satisfaction to quickly and easily decrease clothes without having to get the iron out. Is that a bit weird? well i love it anyway simple pleasures i always say and in fact onto today's focus and when we're thinking about simple pleasures and more particularly about our health and well-being it's easy to just focus on the details of our day-to-day lives you know washing ironing included but more often perhaps the food that we're eating whether we're getting enough exercise and sleep our hormonal health and how we're managing our stress but as humans We are entirely dependent on the planet for our sustenance. We're dependent on our farmers for nutrient-dense food that's hopefully free of harmful chemicals. And that's why it's long been my belief that whether we come from farming stock in the countryside or live amongst the hustle and bustle of city life, we should all care about agriculture and the extraordinary influence it has on our health. And the health of our planet. Now, there's no denying that these topics can be a little bit dry, perhaps, for the uninitiated. But that's why I have invited Graham Harvey onto the podcast today. He's an old friend, he's an environmental campaigner, but also an expert in communicating issues facing British farmers to the general public in a truly entertaining way. Yeah, entertaining because he's actually the former agricultural story editor at The Archers, and that's the UK's most popular and longest-running radio drama. He's been a scriptwriter there for 30-plus years, and he's also written a number of brilliant books, including The Killing of the Countryside, Grass-Fed Nation, and We Want Real Food. And he's currently crowdfunding his latest book, which is called Underneath the Archers, Yeah, get it? Which is both a memoir of his time on the show and also a look at what's happened to British countryside during this time. We're going to be talking more about the downsides of fertilisers, the upsides of regenerative farming for us all, and why we need to return to these more traditional practices as a matter of urgency for the sake of our health and the planet. So, Graham will also be sharing what you and I can do to impact our own health and well-being. I really hope that you find this both entertaining and informative, especially if you are an Archers fan, as I am. So without further ado, let's get right into the show. So, very warm welcome, Graham. It seems quite a long time since I've seen you in person, in real life. I know you're down in the West Country, which is where I am back now. Yes. Can we we start a little bit with your background and your passion, how that started for food and farming right in the
2: beginning? Uh, Yes. Well, um, going way back, uh, I grew up in Reading on a housing estate, absolutely no connection with the countryside at all. But um, it was a new estate and the countryside was there at the end of our our road, basically. And it was the place I got interested from, you know, very early on. Um, And eventually decided I wanted to do agriculture at university. So um, back in the 1960s, that's what I did. I went to Bangor, um, worked on a few farms afterwards, did some postgraduate research, ended up as a journalist with Farmers Weekly writing about agriculture. Uh, And I suppose within two or three years, it was a time uh, when uh, the so-called green revolution was happening in agriculture. And all these high input grain growing systems were coming in, you know, with lots of fertilizers required with these very high yielding varieties of cereals, but requiring lots of chemicals, lots of chemical fertilizers lots of pesticides and so on to keep them growing. Uh, And it occurred to me, this is going to be a disaster. Um, You're okay. very thinking. i was going to ask you actually when you
1: were at college you know back in the 60s i've spoken to other farmers who were studying agriculture back then and it seemed like almost the entire emphasis was was like a chemistry lesson it was how to manipulate the ground through yes. using ever increasing amounts of different pesticides and fertilizers rather than working i guess more holistically what we would now recognize as being more organically was that your experience?
2: Very much so. And I suppose because um, I got interested when I did, which was the 1960s, Britain was still predominantly a mixed farm economy. Um, most farms were still mixed farms in in the way that, you know, it's balanced mixed farming, which means it's like the, the farm of childhood memory, you know, storybooks where you have cows and sheep and ducks and some arable and Golden corn and all that, and it was that mixture, that balance of agriculture, yeah. which really maintained the fertility, really with just solar power. And what happened? Well, it started happening after World War Two, but it really didn't get going until the early seventies, and we got the EU subsidies coming in. Um, that very stable um, model of farming, which had really done the country well for. Two or three hundred years, we suddenly junked that and went on this totally untried system, which depended on nitrate fertilizers to maintain fertility. Um, so it was a huge experiment, which all which started in America, I guess, but all Western countries adopted it.
1: That that's so interesting for you know non farming folk and I, I I don't have a farm anymore but I you know I I was in farming for a while and it was a very interesting journey kind of kind of walking the walk if you like rather yeah. than just talking and talking the talk and. I guess for my generation and certainly my children, they're just used to the current model of farming, which is you have these enormous farms that are monocultures. So you will have a, a, a farm that's just growing huge amounts of wheat or barley or is is just an intensive you know, pig farm or whatever. Mm. And the idea that it, it was not ever thus, the fact that there were these family run farms that as you say, like the old McDonald's storybook, you had some mm-hmm. pigs and some sheep and some goats and you grew some corn. And, you know, it, it was very self-fulfilling, I guess, in a way, in that you could be self-contained without having all these pesticides and things coming in, I guess, advocates of of intensive farming would say well that's not sustainable you can't feed a country on that and surely by bringing in all these pesticides and chemicals you're making farms more productive they're producing more grain they're feeding the nation in a better way what would you say to that?
2: I'd say that was a bit of um, smart marketing and turned out to be an illusion because the biggest threat to a world famine now is the result of those kind of methods which are destroying soils around the world at a devastating rate and that uh, high input chemical method of farming is not sustainable it's destroying our soils and um, we're perfectly capable of growing all the food we need sustainably with on on a on a model which takes care of our by a method which takes care of our soil, the, the great mistake—it's a philosophical mistake, really—and it goes back to the nineteenth century when um, uh, the sort of um, the scientific approach to farming was kind of set by a chemist called Justus von Liebig. Uh, you may remember that name from O-level chemistry. I think it was Liebig's law of minimum. Anyway, he he really convinced the world of agriculture that chemistry was all that mattered. And basically, his philosophy was: if you if you measured the chemicals, the chemical elements in your harvest, and you replaced those chemicals, then all would be well. And that philosophy has probably underpinned farming to this day, but it's now um, seen to be in error. And very, very recent science has shown that what was ignored in that whole approach was actually the microbiology of soils. And in fact, the microbiome, we, we know about the human microbiome in our gut and what it does for our human health, but something similar is happening in food. And how the microbiome of soils actually nurtures plant health and makes nutrients available to plant, makes water available to plant. And the chemical model has really destroyed that or is in the process of destroying that. So over the 50 years or so that we've done this intensive chemical agriculture, for a long time the damage was... um, obscured by the fact there were high uh, organic content organic matter levels in soils which basically means there was a lot of life in soils or very healthy microbial populations but the chemical approach particularly nitrate and phosphate fertilizers has destroyed that or is in the process of destroying that so basically organic matter gone from the soils so the soils don't work anymore and the yields are entirely propped up by the chemicals, but the foods we're getting off it are actually depleted in nutrients because those plants are now not being properly nourished because the microbiology which actually supported healthy plants has gone. And you may, I mean, if you if you look at um, wheat fields, for example, and you see these tram lines, as they're called, these wheel marks through the crops. This allows the tractor to go in and, and repeatedly, as a crop's growing, to spray on uh, fungicides and insecticides and things like that. And that's because uh, those plants are actually sick. They're improperly nourished. So they're covered in disease. And to keep them growing, they have to keep spraying toxic chemicals on them. But if those plants were properly nourished by a fertile soil, they just wouldn't get sick. Yes,
1: I guess it's like us, isn't it? It's about nourishing our own microbiome. And I know listeners will know that I've written and campaigned a lot on gut health and and the healthier our gut is and the more good gut bugs we have, the better our immune system, the healthier we are. So it's interesting, isn't it, that we're now learning that the same applies to the plant kingdom. Exactly. And if we keep the soils healthy, then the plants are healthier. And I've also seen interesting studies showing that the nutritional value of what's being grown (laughs) Is way depleted because if the nutrients aren't in the soil, the plant doesn't take them up, it'll have, you know, organic organically grown fruits and veg, for example, have been shown to have high levels of antioxidants and important minerals like magnesium. Where, where does this end then? I mean, is, is this sort of a, a, a devastating story of unintended consequences that we're going to end up just having to use ever more pesticides and fertilizers just to be able to get something that will that will grow, even though it's perhaps Nutritionally, not very valuable?
2: Well, um, it ends up, it depends how smart we are, it's very clear. Those unintended consequences are are clear now to anyone who looks for it. And and there are methods of agriculture which actually in a sense turn the clock back. They're called regenerative. It's called regenerative farming and a handful of farmers are taking them up now. And it has actually been featured on Countryfile. I was glad to see Countryfile finally discovered regenerative agriculture. Some of us have been writing and talking about it for 10 years but anyway it's happening and it is actually a way of um, I mean the the microbiome of soil is just fascinating and you know the latest research shows that um, plants have very I mean it's a symbiotic relationship between plants uh, and the microbiome the microbes in the soil and as, as we know you know plants Photosynthesize from from solar energy, they produce um, organic compounds. Something like 40% of these compounds are not used by the plants, they're actually fed out through the plant roots. They're fed to microbes. And different species of plant have different microbes which they attract into their root zones to set up this symbiotic relationship. So the plant is feeding sort of sweetness. Um, carbohydrates, basically, to the microbes, which use these carbon compounds in their own metabolism, and in the process, they create the conditions which allow plants to take up nutrients and water. So, and that that whole system is just broken by our chemical methods. So, it has to go. We have to change. It's a question of the pace at which we, which we change. And obviously, a lot of vested interests in trying to keep us locked into this chemical approach. But um, from a healthy food point of view, I mean, organic food has to be the minimum, really. Regenerative is kind of organic plus.
1: They're very, very interesting, and interesting that, that you talk there about Countryfile and the BBC. And I know that that this passion of yours led you to work on The Archers, <laughs> of which I am a big fan. I grew up with it, and my children have grown up with it. My mother, my grandmother—you know—it was sort of almost in our DNA listening to The Archers. I know many of my um, family here listening. My extended podcast family will also be big fans. You work for many, many years as a script writer and an agricultural story editor and you actually introduced a lot of the principles, didn't you in into that program? For example, we you know we had you know the the Archer family you know turning organic and the, the being this sort of big rivalry almost between the different farms and then you had the kefir production yes. going with the massive the uh, <laughs> massive shot in the arm for me because that's something I I love too. Can, can, can you talk about some of the um, principles that you introduced and and how easy was it to introduce that into the script of a of a massive national radio show?
2: Well, uh, I should say I didn't introduce the organic farm. Pat and Tony turned organic before I uh, i was, was I writing on The arches, But I, it certainly wasn't my decision. My predecessor as our culture editor, uh, Anthony Parkin, turned Pat and Tony organic. So when I came on the show, there wasn't already an organic farm there. Um, but I, you know, that was obviously by that time I was very interested in organic production and other sustainable ways of producing of growing food. Um, I suppose the challenge, uh, for the first 10 years or so, I worked on the show, I was simply a script writer. So I made sure there was a lot of agriculture in my episodes because the writers have that freedom to to introduce their own scenes and so on. But uh, when I started doing storylining, I mean, the key to getting um, uh, those kind of stories into the show was to, you know, find, exploit the most, Dramatic um to put the you know, the biggest drama into it, so I remember one of the keys of regenerative farming are these herbal lays, which are basically grasslands with lots of deep rooting herbs and clover uh, and I wanted to um I wanted to get Adam Macy trying out some herbal lays to see how productive they were, and it was the time when um Pip Archer was uh Having a love affair with um, one of the two the two brothers whose name I saw. oh yes Toby and Toby uh, Toby yeah. so mm-hmm. I I had this idea that um, Adam would plant his herbal lace and the following summer when they're all blooming all these wonderful you know with sanfoin and chicory and all these lovely flowering herbs were coming up um, Pip would ha- be running some cattle on there and she and Toby on their quad bikes quad bikes would um, spend a lot of time on the herbal lace so I kind of made a kind of somehow (laughs) a link with the these herbal lays with all the bees buzzing in and Pip and Toby carrying on their love affair. I'm not sure it quite worked out like that but that was in my thinking to kind of link to slip it into the script that's right and uh, radio drama (laughs) is all about creating pictures in the mind so I I thought with pictures and sound effects of the bees or the rest of it and and sort of uh, Um, a bit of love action between this young couple, it might sort of uh, make the story run. run.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then, of course, we had flooding and we had the, the burying of toxic waste that then you yes. know, was covered up. I mean, there was a, a lot. Now, am I right in saying that originally the Archers was created almost as a kind of a propaganda and information programme for the farming community in, in Britain post-war to actually give a lot of public health messages and to give
2: information to farming communities? Yes, it was very much that. Um, it was actually devised by... Um, farming producer in the Midlands called Godfrey Baisley. And it was a time, that was a time in the sort of 40s and early 50s when the BBC had um, a duty to inform as well as to entertain, which is now long gone, I hasten to add. But at the time, um, uh, Godfrey's aim was to try and get as many farmers to listen and to get these messages. And he had this idea uh, about starting... Uh, this daily drama series and there was there was one going at the time called Dick Barton's Special Agent which was kind of an early forerunner of James Bond and that was running um, daily on the BBC Home Service I think it was uh, and basically the Archers replaced that and it was very um, there was a lot of opposition to it within the BBC when it started because the drama department down in London thought uh, uh, they were very sniffy about this farming producer who had this idea in the Midlands to put on this show about farming I didn't think it would work at all. And they had their own series in production down in London. That was called Mrs. Dale's Diary. But <laughs> for, I don't I don't suppose any of your audience will remember that, but it was a very popular program at the time. But the Archer started really started by this renegade producer up in the Midlands. And really, its audience, its appeal was immense from the very beginning. And it kind of left Mrs. Dale's diary out of sight. And by the mid-50s, something like, at its peak, something like 20 million people would listen. It's just an extraordinary wow. audience.
1: That's, that's Mm. astonishing. And I think it's, for me, I I didn't grow up in the countryside, I didn't grow up with farming, I, I came into it much later in life. But I felt that there was a real connection to the land, and the harvesting and the rhythm and the seasons. And I really enjoyed feeling that I was was part of that, part of that connection, particularly in the British Isles, where we are mostly pasture based. That's our landscape. You know, that's what our land is is suitable for. But I think also when you look back and see some of the really you know quite intrepid storylines. You know, we had modern day slavery. um, Yes. They brought Mm -hmm. in domestic violence and coercive control. You know, it's. Uh, it must have been an extraordinary time to to really think about how we can, or you as scriptwriters, could get those messages into a drama and then link it into to farming and, and agriculture. I mean, really, quite an extraordinary opportunity.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because something like the you know the domestic abuse storyline, which is a very powerful storyline, you actually realise uh, the advantage of having a show which goes on daily year after year after year because it it means you can deal with it almost in real time and very subtly, so the audience and you can allow your audience to pick up on what's going on you know before the family's involved in a sense, which I think is very powerful and um and somehow having the the kind of reassuring setting it was all the farming stuff and the everyday things about the countryside putting that shocking story into that very homely and reassuring setting in a sense makes it more shocking and and more dramatic in a way you think well if this can happen in an ambridge you know where yes. else is this going on yeah. so yeah, um, that was very successful and very, very. I must ask you because I'm such a huge
1: fan of of kefir. Was that your idea to introduce, you know, kefir making into the program?
2: No, no. That was after my time. I have to say. All oh, right, <laughs> but it, it sounds
1: like it, it it could have been one of yours talking it, about. I would have been produce.
2: very happy if it had been, <laughs> but I I've left by then. <clears throat> now, in
1: I know that in 1998 you published a really outstanding book called The Killing of the Countryside. In which you detail just how the countryside has changed beyond recognition in the previous fifty years. Can you just talk us through what changes you were talking about there, and I guess more importantly, perhaps what has happened since?
2: Yes, it was this um uh, it was I mean, it would been going on a pace for many years when I wrote that book. but um as I say, it was it was the the substitution of our Stable, self-sufficient, mixed farming system, which maintained high levels of fertility uh, and also produced a a range of nutrient-filled crops. Replacement of that, essentially, with high-input cereal growing. And particularly in marginal areas of the country, you know, uh, I was living at the time uh, on the chalk downlands in Wiltshire, very thin chalk soils, of which grazing Apart from, you know, crisis times like the Napoleonic Wars, grazing had always been a way of, of um, maintaining those, those soils, really, with sheep grazing. And suddenly that was all swept away and the chemicals allowed them to get rid of the animals, the grazing animals, and just grow cereals year after year after year. Uh, and I was just shocked by the devast- uh, devastating effect it was having on our wildlife and habitats. We were just losing, you know, the the loss of wildlife habitat in Britain has been probably worse than any other country in Europe. And we're now known as one of the most um, wildlife depleted countries in the world. Um, and I saw this going on. Needlessly to produce yet more grain for the grain mountains, as it was called, this great surplus of EU grain, eventually, which a lot of which got sold off cheap to the Soviet Union. So it was absolutely nonsense. We were destroying these species-rich grasslands on the chalk with all their associated wildlife just to grow wheat, which we didn't need to sell oh, off gosh. cheap on world markets
1: yeah. well your your book i mean the, the killing of the countryside is is really iconic and I, I guess that came after another iconic classic rachel carson the silent spring yes I was, was that one of the first works really talking about uh, from what i remember the silent spring was about how when spring comes, it's silent because the bird song has gone. Yes. Because we've, we've killed the birds and the wildlife, is exactly. that
2: right? And um, Rachel Carson was drawing attention, particularly to those um, uh, long-acting uh, insecticides, um, or, or things like Aldrin, I can't remember the chemical name now, but they were very persistent insecticides and they had very insidious effects, like they made... Um, the shells of many birds soft so, you know, they could never hatch. So they had quite subtle effects and they lasted so long in the environment and they they were accumulating in, um, you know, animal bodies and so on and in human bodies. They were sort of um, laid down in human fat. And it was Rachel Carson who drew attention to that. It was the first serious um, criticism of of uh, pesticides, particularly insecticides. And it did change thinking, did change thinking on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And bringing that up to date now, I guess we're hearing much more about the bee population and pollinators and the ongoing discussion about, I never know quite how to pronounce it, is it neonicotinoids?
2: Yes. i like to call it neonicotinoids. Have,
1: have, <laughs> yes. have I said that correctly? Yeah. Can you give us a little lowdown on on exactly what they are and why this is an important conversation to be having? Um
2: to be absolutely honest I'm not um a great expert on that particular class of um pesticides. I know it's well proven that they are damaging to bees but I can't um give you the details of of how it works. My my view of it is that we as long as we have this mechanistic view of nature, uh, which modern agriculture depends on. It's actually, we look on nature and growing food as a kind of factory process, Um, and it's looking at nature as a machine. And as long as we do that, we will get things like particular chemicals, we will keep making great mistakes like a class of chemicals, for example, that damages bees. And we have to think, as you mentioned Liz, we have to start thinking of food and the way we grow it as holistically. We have to go along with nature, and then those mistakes won't happen.
0: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Now, this does all feel or can all feel very far away for some of our listeners, many of whom I know live in big cities such as London and Manchester. So why would you say this is something that we all need to care about?
2: Uh, Because our health depends on it. I mean, I'm, you, you mentioned the loss of nutrients in foods, uh, and that's happening because of the way we grow them. Everyday foods now are depleted in nutrients. Now, I hear it said often, well, you know, people can't afford to buy a nice organic food. But I, I've got two answers to that. One is I grew up in a council state where nobody had any money, but everyone had organic food. Because we didn't call it organic really food. Important. It was just food.
1: It's just proper food. Proper food.
2: So the the consequence of the argument today is that because people are poor, they shouldn't have proper food. It's like Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat cake. If people are too poor to have proper food, which is their entitlement, then there's something wrong with the economy and needs to put it right. And um, radically, I look back at um, the world I grew up in and – What's changed is that the main change is the cost of housing. The cost of housing has just multiplied. You know, it's just escalated enormously with no controls. So people now, you know, when I was a kid, you know, one earner could earn enough for housing and food and everything. Now two people are required to earn enough to have a hope of buying a house. But even to rent now, that's what you need. So there's less and less money to spend on food because we're spending more on other things and particularly on housing costs. So this is a failure of our economy that's created this housing crisis, which is taking money away from people so they can't spend it on the things that they and their families need. And surely proper food, real food, is a basic human right. Especially when we live in a country which is perfectly capable of growing enough nutritious food for everyone.
1: Well, can, can I come back to you on that? You know, is it possible to get a high yield and feed everyone not only
2: in the UK but on the planet without fertilisers? Absolutely possible, using these regenerative methods. And it was known back in the wartime too. I, I mean, one of my wartime heroes is a small farmer. Um, called George Henderson who wrote a book. He, he and his brother were both an They weren't born and bred farmers. They bought, they just had a passion for farming. They bought this small farm in the Cotswolds, about 87 acres. Back in 1922, I think it was, just as farming was going into this Great Depression after World War One, And they farmed it by traditional methods, you know, just like, you know, with grazing animals and corn and pigs and all the rest and poultry. Um, and when World War II started, their little farm was one of the most productive in the amount of food it produced per acre. George wrote a book about it uh, in defense of small farms and it became a bestseller in 1944. And it sold tens of thousands, mostly to young service people who had this dream that at the end of the war, they'd go and buy, get their little place in the country and make a living from it. And George said, "You can." And he said in his book, he gives all his figures and all the co- the, the costs and the returns. Uh, and he said, you know, if all Britain were farmed this way, then we'd be self-sufficient except for things like bananas and coffee. Um, and he did that because he built up enormous reserves of fertility in his soil. And grazing animals are a key part of that that build-up of fertility.
1: Well, let's talk about that because you know grazing animals have have had a very very bad press recently, yes. particularly you know, cows and dairy farming. Uh, and you and I have connected with this over the years, and we'll come on to talk about milk and, and regenerative dairy farms. But in a nutshell, what would you say to those who say we need to you know stop all the? The grazing, you know, it's the cows that are producing the methane that's causing climate change, and you know they're they're the bad guys in all of this. What would your answer to that be?
2: My answer to that is that um, evolution has produced ecos- natural ecosystems, which all always include animals and plants. So the grazing animal is part of the nature's own system. A for replenishing fertility in the soil. Uh, and for growing the the bulk of vegetation, which actually cools the planet by the process of transpiration, streams through the plants. What we've done by our agriculture and by overgrazing, I should say, in in some parts, is actually we've begun turning soil into desert, so it doesn't produce the vegetation to cool our planet. So it's. A, I could totally understand people, um, vegans, for example, not wanting to kill an al- and kill animals and eat animals. That's a perfectly powerful moral position. But in terms of uh, running the planet and keeping everything, keeping natural ecosystems running as evolution intended, then ev- evolution can intend then. You need animals in the system, and my argument would be for many, uh, a great deal of farmland in Britain. You need animals in there replenishing soil carbon because they're the most efficient way of doing it. Now, whether it's a personal choice whether you want to eat those animals, it's just keep them as replenishers of soil fertility. I mean, we've we've got we've got a little field where we live. It, it came with the house. It's just a very steep bit of Unimproved grazing, which means it's natural grazing, and we keep we're kind of retirement home for old sheep. Neighbours give give them to us, so we've got a small flock of um, uh, of sheep which just live out their lives naturally. But they they are key in keeping the biodiversity of that um, that ecosystem and keeping the soil healthy and stopping flooding. So they're playing a big role.
1: So interesting. And I think, you know, for for people to understand that it's having these living animals, grazing animals on the soil, pooping on the soil. That is providing the natural fertilisation. It's improving microbiome activity within the soil and actually sequesting carbon. Yes. So we're actually, they're actually helping to capture carbon, aren't they? So cows, for example, grazing, they may emit a bit of methane, but that, you know, you can get into the whole methane cycle and show that that's not, not an issue but they're actually capturing carbon, aren't they? So we really need these creatures living in our fields and our uplands and downlands all over the UK and beyond.
2: I'm astounded. Even that recent IPCC report a, a week ago when they said, you know, we're really up against it now in terms of climate change. And one of the things they recommended was developing this technology to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and pump it underground and store it. just just total nonsense because I I look out of my window now and I just see grass fields. And every one of those fields is one great photosynthetic cell. And it's capturing carbon and it's put it in the ground far more efficiently than these high-tech machines. And it works because it's worked for hundreds of millions of years. And if we manage the land better, it could work even better and we could sequester a lot more carbon, and it seems nonsense to me that you know we've got a climate crisis because we're digging up all these fossil fuels and burning them in a very short space of time you know fossil fuels that's taken millions of years of removing carbon from the atmosphere to make our planet fit to live on and suddenly we've decided to burning them over about a hundred or two years, so we're actually rapidly making our planet unlivable but to attack natural biological systems like grazing animals and somehow make them responsible for our gross abuse of fossil fuels is crazy i think
1: isn't it i mean talking about regenerative farming and grazing it it clearly has benefits for the planet but let's move on and talk about our health so grass-fed for example pasture-raised why is that so important and why is that the way to go and to look out for, for example, on food labels? This is something that we can all do now. We we have the opportunity to, to be a little bit more aware as consumers. What are the benefits for our health of that, if we're thinking selfishly rather than about the wider picture of the planet?
2: Um, yeah, well, basically, it seems to me, from the time I've been writing about this, I, I did produce a book once called We Want Real Food, and that was very much of... Um, the idea or the principle that for a plant, a crop plant, to be properly nourished and to have all the nutrients that will eventually be passed on to the human, the soil needs to be very fertile. I don't just mean it has to have all the nutrients in it that plants need, but it has to have the microbiology, the, the microbes that will feed the plant. Um, and we've taken a key, as I said, a key element out of that equation, we've basically remove the microbes or greatly diminish them. So our crop plants now are not properly nourished. They are, they are themselves unhealthy and they don't have the nutrients in them. So uh, the point of organic is um, that we know that must come from a, a reasonably fertile soil because it won't have been abused by chemical nitrate fertilizers. Grass-fed, in a sense, um, is even more important. Um, And it's, in fact, it's not simply a matter of if you eat meat or dairy foods or cheese and so on. Um, It's not just a matter. We know that animals that graze pasture have much higher levels of very important nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, an amazing substance called CLA, which is uh, conjugated linoleic acid, which protects against many degenerative diseases. But a whole lot of, um, but if that pasture contains not just grass, but a whole lot of uh, clovers, deep rooting herbs, things like samphine and and chicory, all of which complement the grazing animal's diet, all of which um, produce antioxidants, which get laid down in the meat and the milk of that animal, all of which get passed on to We humans who eat those foods, if we eat those foods. So we need a farm. We need to eat from farms which have huge diversity, diversity in their pastures and have a cropping diversity too. Um, And, you know, I was reading Tim Spector's book about, you know, what we should eat in terms of the human. And he makes a big thing of diversity, you know, as many diverse plants as we can. But we need to apply that principle to the farms where our foods are grown, that they show the same diversity. And it's, it's really interesting, you know, the, the chemical uh, farming lobby has always presented us with a choice between having enough food and wildlife. But you need a farm which is full of biodiversity to be sure you've got the diversity in the cropping and, in the, and, and below ground in the soil to produce the foods which will have the nutrients to protect our health.
1: Mm. Now, I know one of the first times that we connected was a number of years ago. We made a little series of films together on um, grass fed dairy and the differences, the nutritional value in milk. And I was very interested to to be researching that and to hear exactly about CLA, conjugated linoleic acid levels in grass-fed milk, particularly because that's implicated in, you know, so much to do with human health and, you know, helping with keeping us a healthy weight, for example, which is always, you know, front of mind for a lot of people. But also we looked at the rise of milk vending machines, in the countryside and this is something that I've campaigned for in fact we have a whole piece on the there's our well-being website where you can go to look up and find your nearest vending machine which just seems such a, a brilliant idea I don't know who first thought of it that that dairy farmers would milk the cows put the milk straight into a vending machine and you could go and take your refillable glass bottles so you're cutting down on plastic and Fossil fuels involved in transportation, refrigerated containers taking milk halfway across the country to be processed. The farmers actually benefit from a proper fee. They're just paid directly cutting out the middleman. Consumers get fresh whole milk direct from the farm and it's all packed in in plastic not plastic free containers that can be washed out and reused. That's it's just such a genius idea, isn't it? And it does seem to be gathering a bit of momentum now.
2: It's absolutely brilliant. And um, mainly because mainstream dairy farming uh, has gone for low cost production. So we've got more and more investment going into these huge, great buildings, housing bigger and bigger herds, driving down the price of milk. So the, and also driving down the quality of milk. And so you get a, a, a farmer perhaps on a limited acreage who doesn't want to do that, who wants to look after his cows better, wants to feed them more natural homegrown diets, all those kind of things, they cannot compete in that big market. And your vending machines list have opened up opportunities for them to find a local market. So it should really enable a, a flowering of of new micro herds and so driving up the quality of milk and giving access to markets for these um, well I think better quality milk producers so I think it's great
1: definitely well yeah I mean I'm not not the one who started it but I've been very very happy to be an advocate and to help amplify it and hopefully you know there are more I remember I was at a dinner not that long ago unfortunately it was just before the pandemic so we, I didn't get a chance to take it further but it was with one of the heads of a co-op who have a lot of local shops obviously all around the, the, the yeah. UK and are very much supportive of British farming and agriculture when you go into a co-op you're likely to find a lot of homegrown british produce there and apologies for those who are listening to this outside of the british isles but it's it's a model that i I remember saying to the 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 guys there why don't you have milk vending machines in every branch of the co-op yeah because they were saying they were suffering because people weren't popping in every day to get their daily newspaper, which is was kind of the original bread and butter of the co-op. And then you'd pick up a few things along the way. Now, a lot of people are, are accessing their news online and not actually going for the printed newspapers themselves. And I said, well, if, you know, if you're getting people coming in to refill their milk bottles, that would be such a great way of encouraging your customers, you know, to become loyal and regular. And, and you know, I'm just popping down to the co-op to pick up my milk. And actually cutting down all the plastic waste and ending up with a a better product, more yes. nutritious product, better for the countryside, better for the cows, just Absolutely. better all round. So you've got me on a real hobby horse program. Yes. <laughs> well, it's a good one. <laughs> I, I'd like to ask you actually uh, about some of the conflicting information. In this area when we talk about regenerative farming because listeners may well have seen arguments from those such as John uh, George mombio for example who say that we'd be better off moving to a system of plant-based agriculture and rewilding what are your thoughts on these arguments
2: well I, I just disagree with George on this I mean there are two approaches um, really to um farming should go there's there's george's argument, which is um one 's called land sharing one 's called land sparing I think george yeah I get muddled between them. i think george's argument is the land sparing one, which basically means in in terms of wildlife and biodiversity, you can write off farmland or the most or a large part of it and say that's intensive farmland that's all the chemicals and so there'll be no wildlife there to speak of so what we'll do is we'll rewild a lot of we'll let we'll let farming rip on those areas where we designate as farming and then we'll rewild everywhere else and uh, uh you know and get this wonderful habitat like like nep nep castle which i've i've been and loved mm. what does that mean though rewilding it just basically means uh, let let nature have its way um, in Nepp Castle, so Would there be any a- animals on yes, it? They've ne- they've, yes, because in nature, you always have animals. And actually, if you want it really natural, you need predators at the top of the tree because you need predators so that you have grazing animals there. But, but you need predators as well because this is what created, for example, the American prairies, um, which had these huge reserves of carbon and you had, before the Americans, the Europeans came and ploughed it all up, Those the land west of the Mississippi, which basically is whole of the middle of America, was grassland. No trees, just grassland. And the first settlers there put on their maps, they called it the Great American Desert because they were from Europe where, you know, trees were the source of wealth. And they looked at this land west of the Mississippi and thought, well, That's got to be desert because all it will grow is grassland. In fact, it was a huge um, store of biodiversity and also fertility and carbon. Huge amounts of carbon under those soils. And they were maintained by these great herds of bison, other grazing animals. But, you know, the king of them were the, the bison herd, vast herds, and they would move across those prairie states in seasonal grazing patterns in these great herds so they would trample and devastate everything and then move on and the grasses would be grown and all the herbs and the wildflowers and so on. Um, and under that system, you got fertility maintained, but you needed predators in the system so that the cattle grazed or the bison grazed in that particular way um, and what it produced is huge levels of biodiversity and wildlife, but also great levels of, levels of carbon. The Europeans came, plowed, you know, they killed the bison. Uh, they plowed up, the, found them very fertile, grew grew all their wheat crops, just as we do. And in about 30 or 40 years, the fertility was gone. We had the dust bowls, you know, the grapes of wrath in the 1930s. And in a sense, we've gone on making a mistake sorry this is a long answer to a question about rewilding what i'm saying is you do have you need if you're if recreating wild habitats grazing animals are part of it but to make them behave in the way that you need you need predators in there as well or humans i suppose could act as the predators um the alternative and is the one that i would support is that you know we're a small island. We've all we've got to have a lot of agriculture. We've got to have a lot of productive agriculture, but I think uh, it should be the agriculture that we once had, which is uh, we're more knowledge. We've got more science now, so we can do it better. But we need basically mixed farming of the regenerative model with grazing animals, so we put carbon back into the, and we will have enormous levels of wildlife. You know, and and
1: nutritious food, and better food.
2: So, so I disagree with George. (laughs) Okay. Well, no, that that, that's
1: good. (laughs) It's very interesting to have two, you know, two two views there, and I think. (laughs) I think the upshot is that there really is such an urgency to get back to less destructive forms of farming. But I also know that many of our listeners, particularly those who, who don't live in a rural environment, will feel helpless. Do we have any power at all as consumers? Should this information that we're talking about now be influencing the food that we buy or are there other ways that we can take
2: action? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it may, I mean, we can all buy it is now possible in a way that never been possible before to buy food from regenerative farms you just find them online and um, Mm -hmm. uh, i guess the cost of that food comes into it i Mm -hmm. you know i buy we've got a local farmer's market in somerset in minehead where i live and Mm -hmm. i um i don't have a lot of meat but i buy all my meat there and there's a woman there who's got a a farm on the Black Downs. I don't know whether she calls it regenerative, but it's all grass-fed. And uh, I mean, I I buy wonderful meat there, grass-fed, genuinely pasture-fed beef and so on and chicken. And it's not expensive. I don't think it's any more expensive than Tesco. Now, I'm not saying all farmers' markets are like that, but this Mm. is. Um, And I think meat, in a sense, should be expensive end because um
1: yeah it should be a a, a, rare, a rarity yeah,
2: absolutely you
1: know eat, eat less but eat better. less
2: but better and but if you buy it from a regenerative or grass-fed then you are making you are making a contribution to in a sense rewilding our farmland mm.
1: Yeah, which is very empowering. Graham. it's it's so good to, to chat through all of this. What is next for you? You've obviously written so many brilliant books. Have you got another one on the cards? I've got
2: one on the cards at the moment. It's called Underneath the Arches. <laughs> but, um, which I hope will appeal to Archer's fans, but it's it's Excellent. a memoir really. It's not it's not an Archer's book, although there's a lot about mm-hmm. the Archers and my relationship with the characters. But it's mm-hmm. also about my views on farming and you know how I work those farming storylines, sustainable farming storylines. Yeah, you know, it's stories like um, you know you mentioned Brian Aldridge and the great soil pollution scandal. That was that was my yeah. that was my story. So it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's called Underneath the Archers. It's not out yet. In fact, I'm crowdfunding it with a, a company called Unbound um, and it will be out uh, later this year or early next year. So
1: we shall watch this space, Graham. Thank you so much for your time. It's It's been such a journey through so many things and I'm sure a lot of people will be listening to the Archers with renewed interest and insight. So it's been lovely to chat with you. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. I've
2: enjoyed it, Liz. Thank you.
1: Oh, I love that, especially how he got Pip and Toby to go and have a snog in the herbal lays to make a point about regenerative agriculture brilliant subliminal messaging, don't you think? And also, if you're interested in finding out more about grass-fed milk and whether there is a local vending machine near you, do head to Lizard Wellbeing. If you look up milk vending machines, then you will find a map and information of where you can find yours in the British Isles. And I think it's a phenomenon that is spreading globally, so certainly worth looking out for. Well, that is just about it for this week. Thank you very much for being with me me there is plenty in fact to look up on lizardwellbeing.com. if you fancy some delicious easter treats we've got lots of new recipes up there we've got some home beauty treatments and health ideas please keep your comments coming you can find us across all the usual social media channels and i look forward to being back in your ear this time next week until then go very well happy easter bye-bye <laughs>